0: You're listening to forecast the marketing podcast for professional services leaders. If you're looking to generate more leads, win more deals and take your firm to the next level, this show is your shortcut. Hey there, folks. Welcome back to the show. We're going to pick up on a note here that we begin in my last conversation here on the show with Landon Porter. Today, we're talking to Michael Katz. And Michael has a very similar argument, but a different take on it. Michael's argument is really simple. You cannot sell based on expertise alone. Expertise on its own is not good enough to win the deal. Because the reality is there's plenty of people in your market who are making very similar claims expertise, and from a buyer's perspective, it's really hard to tell the difference. So what they do is they choose the option that's a little more familiar, a little more engaging, a little bit closer to the way that they see the world and the values that they have and the way that they like to do business, and that's where your personality really becomes your biggest asset. Not only your expertise, and that's important, don't get me wrong, you've gotta have strong expertise and you gotta be demonstrating that expertise to your market, but it's probably not good enough to really make you stand out from the pack. Your personality is the thing that nobody else can replicate. Nobody else can make a claim to your personality. It's uniquely yours. And ultimately, it becomes your greatest, most powerful differentiator. That's what we get into in this conversation with Michael Katz. Before I let you get to the conversation, I want you to listen in. To what Mark Mitchell had to say about getting on a call with yours truly. Got this thing that we're doing, it's a lot of fun. It's called the 15 minute brainstorm call. And what I do is I talk to consultants and professional service providers just like you. We spend 15 minutes diving into their biggest challenge, their biggest business problem, and we brainstorm and we chat and we have a lot of fun, and they walk away with some really powerful insights. Want you to listen to what Mark Mitchell had to say after having one of these conversations conversations with me your questions were so insightful
1: just the questions you asked me about the business myself my approach that if we had done nothing else I literally easily you gave me a hundred thousand dollars worth of advice that I could look back over the past years and go wow why have I been doing it this way if I you know if we never talked again if I just simply took that which what you handed me I could take that and and did take part of it boom the next day and start changing things and it immediately paid off.
0: All right, folks, if you want to get on one of these 15-minute brainstorm calls with me and experience the kind of breakthroughs and insights that Mark Mitchell and many others have experienced on this call, go to forecast.fm slash brainstorm. That's forecast.fm slash brainstorm. Book a call. Get yourself on my calendar. And let's talk. With that, here is my conversation with Michael Katz. Michael, thanks so much for coming on the show great to be here. So why don't you get us started by telling us the the Michael Katz backstory?
1: Yeah. Um, Well, I have to say I was a a kind of an accidental uh, entrepreneur in that I I really never had any plans to work for myself. I, I don't have any entrepreneurial background in my family. My dad worked for the same company in the same building his entire career. Um, I have two older brothers. One's a tenured college professor. The other is a partner in a law firm. So we're like, we don't take risk in my family. And I was on the same path. I went to college, went to business school, had a couple of jobs. And then the last company I was at, I was there for 12 years and very much on that same path. But a few things happened. One was, I kind of realized at some point I wasn't going a lot further. Like I was good enough to never get fired, but I was going to be just a middle manager kind of guy, and I thought, boy, I could be doing this for the rest of my career. Um, The second was, this was in the late 90s when I started really getting the itch, and the internet was really coming of age back then. I mean, there was so much stuff happening, especially in the Boston area where I live. And back then, having a job felt like you were missing out, so I wanted to kind of get involved. And... I also just didn't feel like I was really firing on all cylinders. I, I wasn't doing anything I was particularly good at, and so it all kind of came together where I decided I would, I would leave, and um, I was gonna, uh, I was gonna work on my own, and I was gonna build websites. That was like the new big thing back then. Um, I wasn't, I'm not technical, so I was gonna be more like the architect of your website was my idea, and I would help you figure it out and plan it, and that was somewhat of what I did in my job. Um, it was not successful. Um, nobody wanted to hire an architect and hire someone to build it. But I stumbled into this idea of email newsletters, which at the time really didn't even exist. It was just I would send bulk emails to people, maybe thirty at the when I first started, of people I used to work with at the time, about the internet. I like writing, and it was fun, and I was interested in the internet, and that started to grow, really accidentally. People I didn't know added asked to be added to the list which seemed really odd in 2000. And I also found that people wanted to talk to me or have lunch with me or invite me to speak because they received this email that I published and still do every two weeks. And I kind of slowly realized this is a really good marketing tool. And so I started doing that for other people and companies. And that was my main thing for a good 10 years. And then at some point I added in coaching Because I had other people saying, hey, I want to leave my job and you seem like you're surviving. Can you help me? And so today that's pretty much what I do, a combination of newsletter development and writing, as well as coaching other people in their own businesses.
0: I feel like if you tell people that you've been writing emails for 10 years, they might not believe you. (laughs) It sounds sounds like a a small thing to keep you so busy. How, How did this really take off for you? You mean for myself or for others? Well, well, both. I mean, you've been serving others through that, right? So, like, yeah. how did how did this become such a such a growing need?
1: Yeah. Well, I'd say a, a book that's kind of changed my life was Permission Marketing by Seth Godin, which I think he, I think it's his first book, and he published it in 2000, 1999. I remember reading that book and thinking, this is a totally different approach to marketing because up until then, I mean, the twelve years company I worked for, I worked for the cable company. Sorry. And so I was one of the, I was a guy who sent you all that stuff in the mail every month. And permission marketing the point was now that there's something like email as long as you have people's permission to contact them you can do it as often as you want as long as they find it valuable essentially for nothing. And when I realized that that the only thing that would keep you from marketing was content previously it was cost Because that's what kept you from dropping more mail or advertising or whatever. I, I really did have this insight of, wow, I like writing. I can stay in front of people. And so it was really just a thing that slowly grew over time. And it happens to be the perfect combination for me. It's a type of writing that I'm particularly good at and that I like. It's short format. It's conversational. There's a chance to kind of uh, combine humor plus useful information. It's got a little bit of technology in it, which I also like. So for whatever reason, newsletters are kind of a perfect fit for me. But I also saw how valuable they were and frankly still are. I've got two clients I've had for 15 years publishing their newsletters every month. And for professionals, attorneys, consultants, financial planners, recruiters, it's often the only marketing they do. But it keeps them in front of people in a way that positions themselves as what I like to call a likable expert. And so it's just like a fantastic tool. And social media has just made it even better because now you have more ways to get that same content in front of people.
0: Yeah, and I I know the topic of today's interview is not email newsletters, but I did want to talk a little bit about it given given your background. I think a lot of people – might be thinking the idea of the email newsletter is, you know, an antiquated notion. You know, I can see how it was a big thing back in 2000, certainly permission marketing was a huge boon for email marketing, and it it was the dominant mode of communication online for a long time. But now you got social media, you got Facebook ads, you got um, more competition in the inbox, you know, spam filters, uh, promotions tabs, you know, all kinds of things that make email newsletters harder to be effective with Why, in your mind, is it still such a powerful tool?
1: Well, no doubt about it, in 2000, email was all there was. So it was easier back then. In fact, email newsletters in 2000 through, I don't know, 2005, when blogs kind of came on the scene, they were kind of the way apps are today. Like, you don't want every app on earth on your phone, but you're always kind of on the lookout for something that's interesting. That's how it used to be with newsletters. People were kind of actively interested in collecting them. So that's not the same as it used to be. On the other hand, when I speak to groups sometimes, because this question comes up all the time, I ask people, how many people here check their email today? Every single hand goes out. So the idea that nobody's looking at email anymore, unless maybe if you're like under 20, like my, my kid doesn't check his email. But among like business professionals, it's still the mode of reliable communication. Interestingly, you can't sign up for a single social media, anything, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, if you don't have an email address, that's how they tell you that you, you know here you're on it. So it's still there. And I don't think you have to worry about, well, doing one or the other. I find that social media now gives new life to the content you create. So it used to be you'd send your email and then it was over. That was it. Then you could post it on a blog. Okay, well now you can also take that same content and pieces of it and put it out into all these different places. So, it's evolved, but it's long format enough that I could actually make a connection with you. That I, Because to me, a newsletter is about, can I demonstrate that I know something that you find useful? It's not promotional, it's about something you find useful. And also, do I have enough running room that I could actually make a sort of human connection? That's way harder to do um, through the sort of standard social media stuff. And people who want information to help them live their lives or do their businesses better will read it. I mean, you know, again, people like, gee, how often should I publish? Am I inundating people? I always think that's sort of the wrong way to look at it. Like, like nobody at the Wall Street Journal is thinking, geez, we published yesterday. Let's not bother them and publish today. again. (laughs) But it is about you need a sharper focus. It's not the slam dunk it used to be. It's about Who's your audience? How can you help them? And if they're willing to let you keep coming back into their inbox next month or whenever you publish next, what happens is over time, some small percentage of them, and it is small, but again, it's free to me to send them, so I don't care who's on the list. Some small percent refer you, hire you, you know, invite you to speak. It's really a very effective tool. Uh, provided you do it regularly. And that can be the sticking point for a lot of people.
0: Well, so let me ask you this. In terms of style, what have you found to be the most effective?
1: Uh, Authenticity. So I don't think that there's a particular style of newsletter, just like I don't think there's a particular style of human. Like you wouldn't say to me, hey, if you're going to be a consultant, what's the best style? It was, well, whatever you happen to be. Which, which, and seriously, so, so I like to tell jokes, blah, blah, blah. That's the way I interact with my clients. My newsletter sounds like me. The clients for whom I write newsletters, it's not me. I'm writing in their voice. My thing has always been, if I read your newsletter, it should feel like you and I just had lunch together. And And that could be easier said than done because people tend to stiffen up when they write or, you know, that kind of thing. But I think that's the goal, that it should be as much of an authentic representation of who you are because that's how you are with your best clients. And what you really are trying to do with a newsletter is get more of those best clients. So you want to come across the way you truly are so you attract people like that. And frankly, the people who hate you never call you. It's a, it's an amazing effective tool in terms of filtering people both in and out to your company.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the obstacles people face when it comes to email newsletters or content marketing overall is well, I just I just don't have enough stuff to talk about. What is what is your response to that?
1: If you know enough to have a business, you have I'd say 10 maybe 12 lifetimes worth of content. So, the question is not that you don't know enough. It's and this is a bit of a learned skill. How do you take that volume of information and chop it up into little pieces so here's the thing when you write a newsletter you're not writing to other people in your industry you're writing to the people who would hire you so if you take a simple example if i were a carpenter i'm not writing to other carpenters i'm writing to homeowners who when it comes to carpentry know nothing more or less and it's the same thing whether you're a recruiter or a consultant or a coach or whatever the people who would hire you will read your newsletter because they want to learn a little bit. Maybe you're an attorney and they just want each month to learn something about law or real estate or whatever your focus might be. And the challenge for you as that professional is can you dumb it down so that it really is, you know, carpentry 101? And can you take a tiny little bit? This isn't about. Writing, I mean, people tend to want to write about either, you know, the history of carpentry in one newsletter or they want to say something that nobody on earth has ever said about their field. And, you know, maybe you have one thing to say, maybe two, but that's it. In terms of the people who would hire you, they know so little that your challenge is can you take a simple thing? I mean, again, if you use the carpenter example, it could be like three ways to use a hammer that you never thought of. Or why you should never build a deck on a sunny day or, you know, whatever. It's It really, you would never run out of stuff because you're the expert and they aren't. And I think people sort of look at it the wrong way. But when you look at it that way, you can go forever. I mean, I've been writing a newsletter for almost 20 years. And I should also say that although I never tell the same story or run the same newsletter again, the this sort of fundamental insights relative to my expertise repeat, which they should. I mean, you're trying to show that you have a particular point of view with whatever area you're in. And so it's okay to kind of cover the same stuff again, as long as you don't just, you know, rerun the same one. So
0: it really is limitless. Yeah. I think what people tend to overlook, if you will, is that, you know, you don't need to be teaching something new or like have something really unique to share. Or like a lot of my clients are like, oh, well, we talked about this f- six months ago. And I'm like, look, if people are paying that much attention to what you have to say that they notice you repeat every six months, that's a good problem to have. <laughs>
1: All right? yeah, I agree. And plus, I always say like, you know, because I'll have clients say that too. And I'm like, I wrote that newsletter six months ago for you. I don't even remember it. <laughs> But I mean, again, I, I always take it back to newsletters just a proxy for a business lunch. So you don't think to yourself, well, gee, I talked about this last time. I can't bring it up again. And you also don't think about doing things in a particular order, which people often think, well, OK, I'm going to talk about this this month and this next month, and then we're going to circle back. And I'm like, yeah, you don't need to do that. Write about whatever is you're, you're most energized about today Again, just like that lunchtime conversation, and and that will be the best newsletter you can write. Order really is irrelevant. It's not a book with chapters. It's a lunchtime conversation with a colleague or a potential client.
0: Yeah, you know, quick quick anecdote here just to illustrate uh, the point that you're making. Uh, i got a client who we've – for the longest time, we've been doing a weekly video for LinkedIn, which has been very effective. And every week, we send out an email with the video. And it's, it was – for the most part, it was like a little introduction to the video. Uh, here's what we're going to talk about and then a link to either their website, their blog, or directly to LinkedIn where the video is um, shows up in the stream. And, um, you know, click-through rates weren't amazing because it's hard to get people to click from their inbox to something else, right? And yeah. We thought, well yeah. – this isn't great because clearly we've got all these people on our list and they're not clicking through. They're not getting the whole story. So what if we just tell the whole story in the video in the email, right? So take basically a an edited transcript of the video and just write it up in an email um, in, in a way, in a style that's obviously conducive to email. And forget the video. The video goes on LinkedIn because that's effective there. But on email, it's just text. And, you know, the response and then the engagement rate went through the roof because now they could read the whole email In their inbox, get the message, get the story without clicking through, and that made all the difference.
1: Right, right. I know it's funny. You think, what's the big deal? It's just the click, but
0: it's a big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal, right? If you picture yourself when you're scrolling through your inbox, I mean, when you're in your inbox, you're in a particular mode, and you're not looking to do other things. You're looking to process. You're either going to read, you're going to reply, you're going to archive, and anything else is a distraction. You're going to avoid that at all costs. Right, right. I agree. So let's jump into the topic now of being a likable expert. I know you talk a lot about the importance of likability and why that matters in attracting prospects, getting hired, and standing out from the competition. Tell us more about this idea.
1: Yeah, well, I think you have to be seen as an expert. So, and there's a whole bunch of things related to that, creating content from the way your website looks, is it professional enough, to the things you say and all that. and. That's an essential piece, and I don't mean to down downplay that because if people don't think you're good, that's the end of the story. The problem is, and this took me a while to realize, is that everyone you compete with who's worth paying attention to looks just as good as you do. They have the credentials. They have the experience. They also say that they take care of their clients and it's customized and all that kind of stuff that you and I would say. And so it's very difficult to stand out based on expertise. That's why I always say there's more upside to likability than capability. Not that you don't have to be capable. It's just that, it's like, I don't know how good a doctor my own doctor is, or my own accountant. Like, how would you tell? And the truth is, unless you're getting a heart transplant, it probably doesn't matter. Most professionals are over the bar. In fact, if you're in an industry that requires certifications, like you need a medical degree, you need to be a CPA, you need to be a, a certified whatever, It seems like, oh, that's good. I've got that credential. The problem is even worse there because everyone's got that credential. So what I started to see, and this was partly from the newsletter thing, but it also took me a good, I'd say, 10 years to realize how much people like you and trust you and feel comfortable with you is actually more important because I can tell whether I like my doctor or not. I just can't tell how good she is medically. And so if you think about your doctor, your attorney, the guy who fixes your car. The reason you like those people is because you feel good with them. And there's a certain amount of trust and all that. And so this, I find, has more upside because it is a true differentiator. And so I tend to say to people, don't worry so much or try so hard to prove your capability to me. Instead, focus on things that you can do that make you more likable. Like, do you spend time with people without trying to monetize every interaction? Do you do things like hand handwritten notes? If you're a solo or small company, do you have looser policies than your larger competitors who can't have looser policies because they're they're basically running a factory? I mean, what are the things you can do as a solo or small business to differentiate yourself in a real way that the bigger guys can't? And I and I think that when it comes to something like likability, if you compete with large companies their hands are tied. It's hard for them. They have to do everything in an automated way. And so to me, that's a real discernible differentiator that you can put into action. And so that's why I always talk about this idea of being a likable expert.
0: Yeah. You know, it reminds me of this idea that people don't necessarily remember what you did or how you did it, but they'll remember how you made them feel. Right. And I I love your example of the mechanic, you know, as long as if I've got two mechanics, and as long as I know that if I go to either one of them, they're going to reliably fix my car. Like I'm gonna walk out of there with a new muffler or an oil change or my tires, you know, mounted and balanced, as long as that's that that's clear on both sides, then I'm gonna gravitate to the word towards the one that makes me feel better when I walk in. You know, they have better coffee in their waiting room. He's a good guy to talk to, he's a good conversationalist, he makes me laugh. You know, like, actually, my mechanic's a good example. You know, every time I walk in there, he, he, I mean, berates me in a humorous way about getting my oil changed at Mr. Lube, which is one of these, you know, I don't know if that's an American thing, (laughs) but Mr. Lube is one of these small, you know, oil and lube places that mechanics scoff at, right? right? So, you know, I go in and I'm like, you know, just the other day, actually, I went in and I said, hey, I think I need an alignment, right? And he goes, who said you need an alignment? I said, well, Mr. Lube, he goes, they don't have a licensed mechanic on the premises. I told you not to go to Mr. Lube. You bleep and bleep and bleep. And he goes off on me. We have a good laugh and I enjoy the interaction. Right. And that's frankly, it's that personality is what keeps me coming back, even though I know there's more mechanics down the street who are just as competent and capable as him. But now we have this relationship.
1: Yeah. And I have to say that. You know, quote, serious business people tend to dismiss this kind of stuff. So, right now, maybe you've got a listener who thinks, hey, that's great for the guy who fixes your car, but I'm a financial planner or I'm an attorney or I'm a whatever. People don't want their, you know, financial planner to be joking around. And again, what I found is some people want a serious financial planner. Some people like the fact that your financial planner has a dog in the office. There's no right way to be a financial planner. It's about, Can you come across in this authentic way so that, again, the people who connect can hear that and see you? And if you stiffen up and you just become this two-dimensional professional version of yourself every time the opportunity arises, no one's going to get mad at you, but you're basically doing the opposite of marketing, which is not standing out.
0: Yeah, and that's where I wanted to go next, actually, because I think if people hear this word likable, then their their minds may gravitate towards thinking well i've got a you know likeable people are a certain way likeable people are they're funny like michael is right they're personable they they dress really well they're good looking like we may have like a certain image of somebody who is likable but what you're saying is not to become somebody likable but sounds like you're saying to to be more true to yourself because that's what's endearing to people
1: that's right so Again, I see an entire range of personalities because I do newsletters and coaching for you know all kinds of people, and so you know I've got a client in particular I'm thinking of. I've been doing his newsletter for close to ten years. He's not a funny guy at all. He's a he's like a um, he's the guy they bring into the company when they're about to start laying people off. Who suddenly mysteriously appears in the extra office, and then the next thing you know, everybody's gone. So he's like a guy who like winds down businesses and stuff serious stuff, very smart financial guy, nice guy, but there's not a funny thing about him. But you know what? The clients who like him like those aspects of him. So I always say, think about that client you've got who loves you. We've all got hopefully one of those where like, whatever you say, they think it's brilliant. It's a great relationship. You like working with them. I would bet that in that situation, you're kind of at your best and your authentic best. So can you recreate that, not just in your newsletter, but in your marketing and even the way you behave with strangers? Again, it's easier said than done. But the more you can be that real you, the more people who like that are going to hear that and want to work with you. And again, you'll keep away the people who don't. So it's a very soft and subjective, but incredibly effective approach to marketing, which again, I didn't see at all when I worked for a big company because, you know we everything was made up i mean i always say that's why they have to hire george clooney or like you know a british lizard to sell insurance because they're they're trying to put a human face on this big company and we as smaller companies tend to forget that we've actually got actual human faces <laughs> that we could use. We tend to hide all that stuff.
0: Yeah, I, that's and that's what really grinds my gears in, in my business, and I'm sure you see this as well, is you've got small firms, solo consultants, professionals, boutique firms who, when you boil it down, like it's the people are what make all the difference. It's them, right? But a lot of them will come from maybe a big firm environment. They used to work at a big firm or, or a big corporation. And so they're used to kind of hiding behind the brand, you know, and I I used to work at Ernst & Young when I was a CPA and, you know, nobody hires Ernst & Young because of the partner. They hire Ernst & Young because it's Ernst & Young, right? And so you're kind of conditioned to hide behind the brand. And when you're in new business meetings and you're pitching, it's, it's all about the firm and the work the firm does and the firm's brand and the firm's this and the firm's that. And then they go into small business environment as a solo or a boutique and um and they they try to talk about their firm but guess what nobody gives a rat's ass about your firm because they never heard about it right where your real competitive advantage is not the firm it's you it's your personality it's your humanity but they ignore that altogether because i think it's you know what unprofessional or something like that yeah and i think there's this belief that i need to sort of try and look bigger and more
1: professional again to compete with those people my feeling is always like look if you're a small or even a solo like i am the companies that want to hire another larger company don't want you anyway. That's okay, because their concern might be things like, oh, what if he gets hit by a bus or something? But on the other hand, some people think, I want to hire that solo because you know what? The guy who pitches me the business is the guy doing the work, as opposed to at a big accounting firm, you'll never see that partner again once the work begins. And so some people don't like that as much. So again, there's no right or wrong. It's, if you're small, be small because you can't out big the big guys. What they can't do, though, is write a handwritten thank you note or have an ice cream party for their clients or all again, this other non businessy stuff. But that's what the people who like that stuff are going to connect with. And you can do it, and your larger competitors can't. And plenty of your smaller competitors will never do it for all these reasons. Like, it's so funny to me that I feel like I have this like magical power that anyone could have. It's just that so many people are afraid to come across in a real way, and will always be that by my simply, you know, say, saying whatever I think in in sort of a, a normal way, many people find it refreshing. Again, some people maybe don't like it, but how many clients do you actually need? It's a tiny, tiny
0: segment of the potential market. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, it's, like you said, it's easier said than done, but what's challenging about it is it's simply the fear. I mean, doing it is not difficult because we're talking about being authentic, being true to who you are and being real. I mean, hopefully you don't need to try that hard because you are who you are. I mean, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. So I've recently started a daily marketing podcast and my strategy there is very simple. Like I want people to tune in every single day. I want them to hear from me five minutes a day. I want them to hear about the stuff that I'm working on, the conversations I'm having. I want them to feel like we have a five-minute phone call every single day, right? And, yeah. and the reason I'm doing that is because, look, I know I'm, I'm in marketing. I operate in a very competitive space. And going out and trying to convince people that I'm the best is a, you know, a never-ending uh, proposition because there's always gonna be somebody that comes along and claims to be better, and that's a slippery slope. But instead, investing in building relationships with people, if I come to them every single day, and and they're listening to me every single day. We're going to build a relationship. They're going to get a feel for how I think. And you know what? It's not any extra work because look, after I'm done with you, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to I'm going to record for 5 minutes and talk about what I learned from my conversation with you. And it's it's not terribly much work. I'm just commenting, reflecting on what I'm learning and sharing it with my, my with my audience in an authentic way. And as a result, they benefit. We build a relationship. And then hopefully, when the time comes to hire a marketing coach, are they going to hire the guy that they've been listening to every day or the guy that hasn't published anything?
1: Yeah, and I totally agree that it's it's all fear-based because, you know, I had the same thing. You, you work for a company, there's a recognized brand, you have a budget, you have a position in the company, people work for you. You know, that a lot of who you are is connected to that. And then you go off on your own and, you know, you have some company name you made up and, you know, you're concerned that maybe people are going to finally figure out you've been faking it all these years. And so the natural response is to look like everybody else who does whatever you do. And so, again, you're not going to be called out for that, but you're not going to stand out either. And uh, it takes a while for really nearly everybody I work with or talk to to get comfortable enough to sort of break out of just being in the middle of the road. So it's a natural response, it's just it doesn't work in your favor to uh, to hide all that personality.
0: Yeah, and I think it's, it's telling when you look at really any marketing channel or medium, whether it's email, on email, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you'll agree that personal emails that don't look and feel like an email newsletter but look and feel like Michael Katz is emailing me personally, those get open more. They beat the spam filters, and they get more engagement, don't they?
1: It was a funny thing on the email. It's sort of gone back and forth over the years. Like when email first came out, there was no design to it because there was no there was no constant contact or Mailchimp, and it was just a, basically a big BCCed email. And then when these other one, when Constant Contact and there, everybody else came out, there was a lot of excitement over the ability to uh, format stuff. And now it's kind of swung back the other way, although I'd say it's kind of split down the middle, whether it's a straight text, email is better, or the other. Um, with me, I look at email, when I send my newsletter out, nobody thinks they're the only one getting it. So although I try and talk in a personal way, I, I'm not pretending I'm only sending it to you. Sure. So, and there is some, I think, you know, and I do mine in a designed way, it's not straight text but I also get plenty that are straight text, and I do think, ah, oh, this is kind of nice too. So I don't know. I think, uh, I think either way has its pluses and minuses in terms of, you know, newsletters as yeah, long I, as it re- reads on a phone. Well, you're, you're in good shape.
0: Well, yeah. And I guess I'm not so much talking about the design as I'm talking about the fact that you're, you're writing in the first person, you're being true and authentic to who you are and you're not standing behind some brand. Right, and I, and right. I think that like, that's, That's what you find across every medium. Take Facebook as another example, Facebook or LinkedIn, right? LinkedIn video is big. Um, Facebook video ads are big. And there's all kinds of data to support the idea that ugly, raw, you know, kind of almost cringeworthy videos on both platforms actually perform better because they're real. They're authentic, you know, you're coming to people from your office, maybe, versus I mean, I I have data to support this from my own practice that when I put out a really well-produced video on Facebook as an ad, it does not do as well as when I put out a video that's clearly me in my in my native environment with a messy desk um coming to you straight from my office because people want that real interaction more than they want the the polished production.
1: Yeah, I agree. In fact, I think um you know, to me, one of the nicest and biggest changes in the you know, 21st century in terms of marketing is that we've all been forced to be more real and to sort of provide more of a 360-degree view of who we are. I mean, 20 years ago, you could work with people for years, and you didn't really necessarily know anything about them because our personal lives and our business lives just did not overlap. And there was no Facebook or anything. And so unless I went out of my way to share something with you, you you might not know anything about me. Today, if you still try and just provide that business information without any of the background about your kids and your dog or, you know, whatever, it feels unnaturally stiff. So. I think there's this sort of not just an opportunity, but it's almost like an obligation. I need to be able to check you out in some way to see if I like you and connect and all that, which you couldn't do, you know, pretty recently.
0: Yeah, no, no, absolutely. So look, I think there's, I think there's a word of mouth angle to this as well, because the more that you're publishing, whether it's on email or social, and you're being real, you're being authentic, you're being that likable expert, the more you'll attract clients, but you know, I would imagine also the more that your existing clients will feel good about you and will refer you. Has that been your experience?
1: Um, I think so. Although I have to say my focus is always on this sort of middle ground of people. And what I mean is, if you're doing a good job with your existing clients, they, they know you and like you. And if, if that's all the world was made up of, you wouldn't need any marketing, you know, because you're working with them. So I don't think they care so much about your marketing. Then you got sort of strangers out there. And I don't actually worry too much about those people either. Like, it's fine if you Google something and you find your way to my website. The people my marketing is focused on are people I already have – I already know, but they're not clients, not even necessarily friends. But they're people where if I emailed them, I wouldn't have to introduce myself. And my marketing is focused on how do I stay in front of those, I don't know, four or 500 people on earth? so that they remember me and I'm top of mind, and then they tell people about me. So it's a, very, um, it's a very sort of closed system almost, but it's very effective because those people are way more predisposed to opening your email and talking about you and all of that. Um, but it does require some type of constant pulse out there, whether it's a newsletter or a podcast or just – I know some people who are just really good at emailing and phone calls – Which it's very um, random, but it's not luck. Like you can turn the volume up on this relationship marketing stuff if you just do it enough. And then what happens is you don't know who's going to come to you based on someone else's referral. But if you're out there enough, I find the phone just kind of keeps ringing.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I think this this middle ground is probably the lion's share of your LinkedIn contacts. If you scroll through LinkedIn, you know, some of them are clients. uh, Some of them are people who wouldn't work with you. Probably the majority of them fall in that middle pack of they know you, they don't work with you yet. They could work with you or they could be a potential referral source.
1: Yeah, and I always ask people, what do you do to stay in front of the people you already know? And the answer is usually Nothing. Like if I run into you, I say hi or if I, you know, whatever. But I mean, what do you systematically do to stay in front of the people you know? And if you don't already know where those people are, meaning you've got some list that's your go-to home list, house list, then you don't know. Again, I I always compare it to exercise in the sense that you're not going to have a miracle today. You have to keep doing it. And if I asked you, tell me about your exercise and you couldn't tell me this is how I do it and when I do it. Then you don't have an exercise program. It's the same thing here. It doesn't have to be complicated, but you need an ongoing systematic approach to relationship marketing. Or else, you know, it gets pushed off because other stuff gets in the way. And then like exercise, you go you look up and months have gone by and you're like, oh geez, I forgot all about that. <laughs> so it's it's not hard, but consistency really matters.
0: Yeah. And before you know it, people forget about you. And then when it comes time to hire a, an X or a Y, um, you're not top of mind. They go another way because that guy was top of mind.
1: Yeah. Just as you said, we all live in a word of mouth world here. Like Nobody's buying ads on the Super Bowl. And so people often think word of mouth is just luck, but you can turn the volume way up as long as people understand what you do which is one thing right there. A lot of times you say to someone, hey, what do you do for a living? And you get a 10-minute answer. You don't even understand it. So you need to be able to clearly explain what you do. You need to obviously be good at what you do. That's just the price of admission. And then I think this likability thing matters. If people like you, they refer you. It's sort of like if you can throw a baseball 100 miles an hour, nobody cares about your personality. But most of us don't have a skill like that that separates us from the pack. Most of us, on average, by definition, are average. So... This other stuff is really important
0: in standing out and being remembered and getting referred. So what you're saying is if I can throw a baseball 100 miles an hour, I can ignore all of your advice.
1: <laughs> I always
0: wish I was
1: I always wish I was good enough at something to be a complete jerk. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm not. But yes, that's true.
0: <laughs> well, look, Michael, I know we covered a lot of ground today and it's been incredibly insightful. Anything else you want to mention before we wrap up today?
1: Yeah, I actually set up a, a, a dedicated uh, uh, landing page for your listeners at michaelcatscom forecast. And I've got a bunch of resources there. My newsletter, some books I recommend, but also I have, which I find useful for a lot of people, a, uh, a list of all the tools I use to kind of run my business, many free, many inexpensive, because, you know, you got to keep things going. And, and I think
0: people often will find that useful. And it's all there on that same page. Awesome. We will link to that in the show notes of this episode. Michael, thanks again for coming on the show. This has been great. Great. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's Ahmed here again. Before I let you go, there are two things I want you to do. The first is if you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe to the show on iTunes or Google Play by visiting forecast.fm and clicking on the relevant link. While you're at it, please do leave us a rating or a review because it helps more people discover the show. The second thing is I want you to grab my free course on the five P's of lead generation for professional services firms. Inside the course, you will get a step-by-step framework to help you generate a flood of new business for your firm. The course is 100% free of charge and you can get immediate access at 5leadgen.com and you can spell out five or use the number, either one works, that's 5leadgen.com. Thanks for listening.